0: Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room, and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com.
1: The NBA playoffs are
2: here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. Is what you love about playoff the NBA Playoffs, presented by Google Pixel, continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT and NBA TV.
0: Welcome to The Rest is Polities with me, Alistair Campbell. And me, Rory Stewart. And we've got a lot to get through today, Rory. Middle East... Yemen, the airstrikes against the Houthis, whether there are going to be more. I think we're on the 100th day of the Israel-Gaza war, and I think we should talk both about the levels of starvation, big report last week, and also this case between Israel and South Africa, the International Court. And also, I guess, is this conflict now going to spread, which has been the worry from the start. Taiwan, in election year, we've just had one of the big ones, Taiwan, where the incumbent won. And then I think we should more domestically, post office scandal is still a massive talking point in our politics and um, a lot of polls around at the moment and a lot of them about what implications there are for the conservatives of reform and in particular whether Nigel Farage comes back as a kind of central political figure. So shall we kick off in Yemen, kick off with the Houthis?
1: Yeah, well, so, so let's try to take uh, Yemen as a starting point. So, um, as we discussed last week, in solidarity, it seems with Hamas and certainly in solidarity with Gaza, the Houthis, who are a the dominant force in Yemen, began to launch attacks on ships sailing up the Red Sea towards the Suez Canal and Israel, and they mounted some relatively successful attacks and. Initially, there were responses from the US Navy and the British Navy against the Houthi ships. So they sunk three ships and then they sh- shot down some missiles. And then over the weekend, there were strikes against the land. So they struck Houthi installations on land, they struck airstrips. Uh, in the middle of the night, they took out missile facilities. Um, the reason, of course, that this is big news is that this is the beginning or feels like the beginning. Of the conflict becoming more international, so very quick explainer on Yemen. Uh, Yemen is a rectangle of territory, uh, right down at the bottom of the Arab Peninsula. It's got the Red Sea on its on its left. It's a very you know ancient country. It's a place famous in the ancient world because people believe the Queen of Sheba came from there. A place that produced frankincense, for example. It's a very large population, thirty two million people. So, compared to places like UAE, which have, or Qatar, which have tiny populations, Yemen's a big populated place. But it has found itself in conflict for decade after decade. And older listeners will remember that uh, Yemen was originally divided up up until 1990, relatively recently, between North Yemen and South Yemen. So, South Yemen was a British colony arranged around a port city called Aden, which was a very important part of the British Empire because it's where they put coal into ships on their way to India reunified in 1990 after a lot of fighting and brought in a president who stayed in place until the Arab Spring. And in 2012, and the sort of general fallout of the Arab Spring, which famously you know, happened, Tunisia, Libya, Bahrain, Syria, also happened in Yemen, um, was toppled. I was actually there while a lot of this was happening, visiting the British embassy and saw the first really big drives of this Houthi group down from northern Yemen towards Sana'a, which they finally captured in 2014. The Houthi, just to remind people, are a group who, unlike their opponents, are followers of a particular branch of Shia Islam, which makes them closer to the Iranians, who are also uh, dominated by Shia Muslims. There are other Muslims, of course, in both countries. And receive funding from them and have been both very successful in taking Yemen, so they captured. Most of Yemen, driving the old government down to Aden in the south, and have also launched attacks from Yemen against Saudi Arabia and UAE. And that's partly in response to the fact that from 2015 onwards, the Saudis and the Emiratis intervened, did these massive bombardments, tens of thousands of people killed, hundreds of thousands of people driven to the edge of starvation, finally, millions of people displaced in an intervention with the US and the UK giving weapons to Saudi Arabia as it got involved. That went nowhere. Saudi Arabia was unsuccessful in its attempt to fight the Houthis into submission. and There was a ceasefire that was developed in April of last year. It's a tragic country in which it's suffered immeasurably. I mean, it's a place like Afghanistan with the most horrible suffering going all the way back to the Cold War now being drawn again into conflict.
0: Well, the other thing that I I think is worth saying in relation to what's happening now. So US-led Britain involved, Netherlands involved, Australia involved, Bahrain involved, but essentially mainly American with some support in the UK in these airstrikes. And, you know, limited, targeted. They've explained where they've hit. But it's worth remembering that the Saudis have been bombing since 2015. And have they had a real impact on the capacity of the Houthis? Hard to say, but they certainly haven't destroyed them. So it's hard to imagine how this limited one-off, well, it's gone on for several days. Are we going to get drawn into a position where, for example, Israel is in relation to Hamas now, whereas they, they signal that they're demolishing their capacity to mount the sort of attacks that have been done on these ships going through the Red Sea, but actually the Houthis have the capacity to keep going? And then what happens if they do keep going? do the Americans and the Brits then have to do this again and again and again? And does that lead to the escalation that the Americans have been saying they've been trying to avoid?
1: Well, a lot of this depends on Iran. So Iran fundamentally provide a lot of the supplies for the Houthis. A lot of those missiles, a lot of the drones come in from Iran. There will be members of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard on the ground providing day-to-day guidance, a bit, a bit in the way that Pakistan would have supported the Taliban in a very similar way. The Question, of course, is does Iran want to escalate this conflict? Mm. Are they going to be content with having fired some missiles, demonstrated their teeth, showed that they can shut down the Red Sea trade? They've diverted more than 2,000 ships, I think, now around the Horn of Africa, away from the Suez Canal.
0: Which, by the way, we, we often talk about why foreign policy matters to the domestic debate. That's going to have an impact upon prices, upon inflation. You're talking about a massive additional cost, and some of the companies, by the way, that are making that journey now—BP, um, Maersk, one of the biggest shipping companies in the world—they're now not no longer using, not necessarily all of them, but there are ships that are going around the Cape of Good Hope rather than through the Bab Al Mandab Strait because they they fear the the force that could be put against them. So that's going to have a cost.
1: Yes, and it's a sort of um. You know, it's, it's a weird throwback, isn't it, to a world where geography really matters yeah. and where these straits are vital. And it's, sometimes it, it sounds a bit like ones back in the 19th century of, you know, Nelson's Navy trying to dominate certain straits and how do they take out certain guns. But of course, the, the big difference today is that these attacks can be launched not just from vessels in the sea but from long range missiles which can mm. fire from very far land. Um so I think you're right. I don't think that these strikes and they're very expensive strikes. Those Tomahawk missiles come in at tens of millions of dollars a pack. So, mm. you know, probably hundreds of millions of dollars worth of Tomahawk missiles. Some people suggest a very substantial <laughs> proportion of actually the the Tomahawk missiles that the US Navy has have been fired in a couple of days. But wow. the the likelihood is that it's certainly not going to topple the Houthi. They're going to remain in no. control of that part of Yemen.
0: It's so also interesting. You talk about Sana'a, the, the scenes on the streets of Sana'a the day after these strikes, massive mobilization of public opinion. Now they can do that. But it was like, you know, you were talking hundreds of thousands of people who were out there. They are well-armed. I don't think we should pretend that this is some kind of, you know, ragged rebel force because the Iranians have been giving them anti-ship missiles, ballistic missiles, some of which have already been fired at Israel, attack drones. This is not going to be met by short-term military action. So I'm assuming the short-term military action is a way of signaling, we can do this and we will do this unless you stop these attacks on civilian shipping.
1: Yeah, And, and in a sense, I mean, you know, People like uh, in the British press, people like Matthew Paris, who was a big critic of Iraq and Afghanistan, has come out in favor of yeah. what's happening because mm. he's saying it, it's sort of unimaginable that you wouldn't respond. It would be very, very odd yeah. if you had major international shipping lines taken down and the US and British Navy wouldn't respond. And it's managed, you know, partly by hitting in the middle of the night and hitting these quite targeted sites, it's managed to do so without huge civilian casualties. Where are you on the
0: parliamentary vote issue? So when we, I I guess this goes back to Iraq, that there was a vote in parliament, then Syria didn't happen because there was a vote in parliament that went against. Keir Starmer has supported Rishi Sunak and the government in saying that this didn't require a prior action vote, as it were, because it was a specific targeted operation. And now there will be a statement and no doubt debate in parliament. But do you think we're moving away from the idea that specific military action should only happen on the back of a parliamentary vote.
1: Yes, I I think we are, partly because, as as you say, people will remember that uh, Obama put that red line in place if chemical weapons were used in Syria. Cameron wanted to come along with him and launch a UK bombing campaign in retaliation. Ed Miliband and the Labour Party particularly rebelled against that, and parliament voted down the Syria strikes. And that then led not just the UK not getting involved, led to the US not getting involved. And some people would argue that that was one of the really big beginning problems of the collapse of the whole international order, You know that it wasn't holding these red lines. So I think ever since then, people have been very concerned about this question about whether parliament does or does not have a constitutional ability to intervene in those early days. I would argue that there is a difference between strikes like this, firing some missiles where you need to keep an element of surprise and you need to act quickly. I think that's different from a full ground invasion. I think if you're actually launching something that feels more like a major war, you probably uh, Mm. in the modern world do need parliament to to agree.
0: And I think on the significance of this one, I I think you said on the last, when we discussed the Houthis a few weeks ago, around 15% of seaborne trade goes through the Red Sea. You're talking about a major, major shipping route. And I guess the what the Americans and the Brits and the others are trying to signal here is that link across to people's standards of living and so forth. So they're trying to say, the Americans are trying to say, this is not a direct consequence. This is not directly related to Israel-Gaza. But of course, the Houthis want us to believe that in fact it is, that this is happening because their action was a, they would say a direct response to what's happening in Israel, Gaza. So what do you think we should think of the implications and the read across on that?
1: Well, I, I, it's 100 percent motivated by Israel, Gaza. I mean the Houthi are, are doing this to show solidarity for for Gaza. and one of the reasons there will be hundreds of thousands of people demonstrating in the streets in favor of it is that there is a sense amongst many Arabs that their countries are not doing anything to respond to Israel's attacks in Gaza. So there's mm. huge sympathy for the population of Gaza throughout the Middle East, I think. People are maybe underestimating this. I think I've mentioned this before, but you know, in Jordan, people I know are all boycotting Starbucks to show their anger at the United States for its support of Israel. Um, if I look at my WhatsApps and social media, most of my Arab friends think about nothing else and are increasingly angry not just with Israel, but with the US and the UK for backing Israel and also with their own governments for not doing anything. So, obviously, these ships don't just pass Yemen. They come right up the coast of, of Saudi and then a little bit of Jordan. So, I think a lot of Arab voters or citizens will be thinking, well, at least the, the Houthis are doing something about this. And it's the first example, I guess, the Arab street has had of states striking back. Now, I mentioned Iran. I think there are two other things very quickly on that will Iran want to now back off? And secondly, how much control really in the end can Iran exercise over the Houthis? So what we discovered with Pakistan and the Taliban and a lot of these groups is that state actors are very good at funding pseudo-terrorist groups and helping them take over. But often when push comes to shove, when they try to restrain them, it turns out that they have less influence than you'd think. And actually this is something that connects also to the way that people think about U.S. and Israel. I mean, mm. yes, of course, the U.S. provides a lot of weapons to Israel, but is the U.S. really able to restrain Israel in the way that um, critics think?
0: Yeah, I suppose with the Houthis and same goes for for Hezbollah. They're often described as proxies, but proxies suggest control. They're allies aren't. They? I mean, they are part of. The, they call themselves this sort of this axis of resistance, but they do it using similar support and similar methods, but they also have their own agenda. So I, th- I think Iran maybe feels it has less control than we sometimes give them credit for.
1: Yeah. And um, of course, there is a the sense that you're, you, know, you have a financial incentive, because it's where a lot of your money comes from. But what happened with the Taliban and Pakistan is once they got into power, they very quickly realized that they didn't really have to do what they were told by Pakistan. It was true with Bangladesh and India, so we talked about this last week that India basically won the war that got Bangladesh independence and assumed that thereafter Bangladesh would be very deferential towards India, and that didn't happen. So I I think it's possible that the Iranians may be urging restraint, but there might come a time where their ability to control the Houthi and Hezbollah decreases, and that'll make things even more dangerous.
0: Now, two other things that happened last week in relation to the Middle East. The first was this South African genocide case against Israel at the International Court of Justice, and that is, as it were, the leading United Nations court in The Hague. So you had two fairly dramatic days. First, day one, South Africa setting out why it believed that what Israel was doing was was conducting an act of, of genocide, which is essentially to deliberately inflict conditions of life, Calculated to bring about the physical destruction in whole or part of national, ethnic, racial, or religious group. So that was the case being put against Israel and then Israel defending itself. And now what happens is that the court has to decide whether there is a, a basic case. And then they're going to take, it is said, several years to decide whether or not this is actually genocide. So assuming they think that there is at least an argument to be had, they can then say whether Israel should stop doing what it's doing. Israel has already said that they're not going to do that, and then they will take several years. But the point is that there's politics attached to this as well, because, of course, South Africa has a, a long history of support for Palestine, Mandela, Nelson Mandela was close to Yasser Arafat, leader of the the PLO. He actually said when he was first released from prison, and then when he was elected president, he actually said in terms, our freedom is incomplete without the freedom of the Palestinians. There is that sense of they're sort of, as it were, freedom fighters together. South Africa, the South African government at the moment, they're also facing elections this year, much less popular than they were under the time of Mandela, perhaps using this for their own domestic political reasons as well. So that is the, that's the first thing going on. That, as I say, is going to go on and, and take some time to resolve.
1: Just very, very quickly on that one. So again, it's a bit confusing because there are two courts that we often talk about. One of them is the ICC, the International Criminal Court, which was set up in the nineties, and, and that goes after individuals. It, it you know has prosecuted people like President Putin or Omar al Bashir in Sudan, where you try to hold an individual accountable for things like genocide. And the ICJ, which you're talking about, which was set up in the nineteen forties and which had a predecessor going all the way back to the League of Nations, so kind of hundred years of this, which is about states. It's not about individuals. and yeah. um, which yeah. has also ruled. On well it's it has ruled on things like maritime boundaries as well as genocide and is very fundamental to the international system because you can't really have international law unless you've got an international court but as I think you you've been saying one of the problems is is even when it makes a ruling and as you say it takes long how do you actually enforce it
0: this will be very very difficult to enforce because what 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 the South Africans and those who are hoping that the the court indicates support for that basic case. What they're hoping for is that in the interim, in the early judgment that they make about the long-term judgment that they will then go on to make, that there is enough in there for, to build, if you like, political capital on the back of it.
1: And, and also just just quickly, there's, there's sort of two separate things. On there. There's your sort of ruling which could take four or five years, and then there's yeah. this interim sort of provisional measures exactly. which could come in sort of what 4 to 8 weeks or something. Exactly,
0: that could come in in relatively yeah. short time. The other thing which I think was um I thought would have got more debate than it did last week was a, a report by the UN-backed Integrated Food Security Phase Classification which is called the IPC. And this I thought was pretty r- remarkable about the level of starvation that's now going on. So we now have there are currently across the world Just short of three quarters of a million people who are experiencing what the IPC define as catastrophic or famine levels of hunger. Okay. Palestinians in Gaza now make up 80% of that number, according to the UN World Food Program. And it's operating according to this the IPC system has these, what they call five phases. Phase one is minimal, or in sense, you know, people have basically got enough food. Phase two is stressed, which is where it's starting to become inadequate. Phase three is crisis, where people are missing meals and adults are giving up meals for children. Phase four is emergency, and phase five is catastrophe. And according to the IPC, the entire population in Gaza, 2.2 million people, is now between phase three or above. And of those, 50% are in phase four, that's emergency, And one in four households, that's more than half a million people, are facing what they call phase five, which is catastrophe. So that is a level of famine, uh, a potential famine, allied to the breakdown of healthcare systems and potential spread of disease, which the UN World Food Programme is saying, the world, we are not taking remotely seriously enough.
1: And so it's another example of the ways in which what's happening in Gaza is really testing all the things that kept the international system together. So yeah. those um, different standards on food insecurity and famine are absolutely vital to the way that the world thinks about these things. When I was the different Secretary of State, these triggered a lot of our humanitarian aid all over the world. So these things happen in Sudan or Somalia or Yemen. And the problem that we're facing now is that supporters of what Israel are doing in Gaza, hearing this, now think that all of this is politically motivated. So they will think that your talk about famine is politically motivated. They Mm -hmm. will say that the rulings of the International Court of Justice are politically motivated. And you're guessing big, powerful voice in the US taking Israel's side on this. The US said, you know, this case is meritless, counterproductive, completely without basis. David Cameron said the same yesterday. Right? He always think he had sort of slightly more subdued, and he said it was not yeah, helpful yeah, yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think at one point he said it was nonsense. And Germany also have said that this shouldn't be going ahead. So it is really problematic because we, we often talk about the ways that over the last 10 years the world is getting more violent, more unstable. But these institutions, these kind of UN institutions, the International Court, and, and, and also things like the World Food Programme's measurements on famine, are what we have. Mm. To try to have some kind of international agreement and peace, and the International Court is a very impressive body. It's got fifteen judges who are generally highly respected from their own individual countries. This is the court that ruled, for example, on on Myanmar. Right? So, a case was brought by Gambia against Myanmar in the, in the ICJ, very similar to what we're now experiencing. The South African case is very, very strongly dependent on some of the statements that have been made by. Israeli government officials and others over time. And Mm. it's very interesting because obviously the British press is focusing on this. It's also focusing on comments from Palestinians or Palestinian supporters that the Times newspaper, for example, will say are pseudo-genocidal. It's pretty terrifying though, some of the um, statements that South Africa has brought forward as part of its case. So Major General Ghassan Alian, human animals must be treated as such. There will be no electricity and no water in Gaza. There will be only destruction. You wanted hell, you will get hell. Nissen Vettori, deputy speaker of the Israeli parliament, burn Gaza now, nothing less. Uh, the minister of Jerusalem Affairs and Heritage uh, is the man who said, we've discussed this before, that dropping a nuclear weapon on the Gaza Strip is an option and added there are no non-combatants in Gaza. And there are no innocents there. Uh, Israel Defense to Yoav of Garland, we're fighting human animals and we must act accordingly. And, you know, you can go on. I mean, Ben Gavir, who we've again talked about, has has said absolutely astonishing things. A number of people have talked about, you know, we we don't want to call them animals because that would be um, too flattering to them. Against that, Israel has put forward many, many statements by ministers and others saying that this is not directed against the Palestinian people. This is just directed against Hamas. But the likelihood is that these judges will make a provisional finding against Israel
0: why, why do you say that?
1: Well, uh, here, here I'm just quoting uh, lawyers and others who've worked at the ICJ who are looking at the type of evidence that's been produced. Right. They think that there's enough there to say that there is a case to answer and probably mm. enough for the court to request Israel to um, bring a ceasefire.
0: I mentioned earlier about genocide defined as committing one or more acts with the intention to, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If you break it then down a little bit, killing or causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. So these are all, you know, it'd be very hard, I would think, to find evidence. Yes, you can get a few sort of statements from some of the the more right-wing politicians and commentators But in a sense, what they have to prove is that this has been the intent of the Israeli government to do these kind of things. And even Israel's a lot of Israel's critics will say Israel has the right to defend themselves. The question then becomes, though, do in the in the pursuit of defending themselves, do they have the right to starve an entire population, and can? The South Africans and those who are trying to make this case make the case that there has been a program of deliberate starvation, deliberate denial of access to water,
1: to medication. And as you say, it's it's all about intent, isn't it? It's all about intent.
0: Exactly. Which is why when you see the Israelis, their spokesmen pressed on this, they will always say, that we make every effort to avoid civilian death. We make every effort to ensure that the civilian population is fed, watered, etc. Now, so then it becomes a judgment about whether that's real. But I think proving intent on some of this stuff is is pretty difficult.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, in the Myanmar case, again, they issued a provisional finding. And again, against Putin and Ukraine, provisional finding after four, eight weeks, which essentially said, please hold off any more military measures while we look at this further. And that's the sort of four five year thing. And I, I think what you might see is that a provisional finding against Israel, and then potentially four or five years later, a ruling that doesn't find it guilty of genocide. But my goodness, it's um, politicized. I mean, it's, you, you, you will have seen all over social media people either sharing, um, if people are sympathetic to the Israeli position, sharing the statements of the Israeli lawyers or if they're sympathetic to the Palestinian position, sharing statements by the, the South African lawyers. I mean, it is really interesting also because the accusation against the International Criminal Court, the other court that we talked about, was always that it was a racist and tended to focus on cases in Africa. Recently, we've seen with Gambia in South Africa, African nations bringing cases against non-African nations on genocide.
0: Okay, Rory. Well, look, we were planning to do both the middle east and taiwan in the first half of the program but we've talked at some length there i think rightly so why don't we do taiwan in the q a and come back after a break with the post office great see you in a sec
2: the nba playoffs are here and we all know playoff
1: mode is a thing listen to the
2: evidence Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Oh, Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Oh. OK, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. This is what you love about The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier.
1: And I'm Katie Kaye, US Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades.
2: Welcome to the Rest is Politics US, brought to you by Goalhanger.
1: Go on, tell us, were those donations you made like Obama in 2008, Welcome back to The Rest of This Politics with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. And this week, very controversially, we now have on The Rest of this Politics leading Gillian Keegan, who is the Education Secretary. She's our first serving Cabinet Minister on the show. I think will be very controversial a lot of our listeners who are often sending in questions. Many of our listeners, of course, are teachers at schools who are, uh, tend to be often very angry with her. I thought, Alistair, you did a, a solid job Speaking up, particularly for a head teacher in London. Um, what was your sense of that interview?
0: I thought she was, on the personal level, very warm, very empathetic. But I just felt the whole way through that she's caught this disease that these ministers have of this, they feel so strongly they have to say that the government's doing a really good job. But I just felt this constant disconnect. As she was speaking, I kept thinking of teachers and head teachers that I know who I could imagine kind of shouting at me for not giving her a much harder time. I didn't want to get into a sort of just, you know, this percent, that percent, this figure, that figure. You know, I said in our, in our upsum of the whole thing, our debrief, I said that I felt there was a backstory there, but very little forward story. Um, look, I'm glad that she did it. And I'm glad that we had her on. And I, I've got no prop I, I'd like it if we had more cabinet ministers on that we could, you know, have some proper kind of robust
1: exchanges with them. But
0: I didn't, I don't know. I felt a bit disappointed by it, to be honest.
1: Right. Well, I, Suggest people listen. I mean, I think it's. I think it's really good. I mean, whatever part of the political spectrum you come from, to, to listen to people from different parties. Oh yeah, for sure. Hear their stories and hear their voices.
0: No, and also the 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 fact is that you know, getting people talking. I think these politicians talking about their their past is always very very interesting. I did get a few people as well saying I should have given her a much harder time on Fujitsu because of her husband's role. But the thing is, you know, with politicians, you know that. That was the one point at which she looked down on her notes. She had a few lines to take, and that was all you were going to get. So I thought there's no point There's no point banging the drum about this one.
1: Very good. So I think that, that leads us smoothly into the post office scandal, which we covered in quite a lot of detail last week. Um, what feedback have you been getting? Have your thoughts evolved on the post office scandal after what we did then? We had
0: a lot of feedback. Um, I actually got quite a lot of feedback from some of your former Conservative MP colleagues, one of whom... Wanted me to fill me in on what they think is going to happen next. Do you know what I I feel in general about this? Is that this happened in large part because of a failure of our politics? Okay, politics right for decades didn't get on top of this in the way that it should have done. So then along comes this TV drama, and along comes this amazing explosion in the public and political debate, and. Everybody finally says, right, we're going to take this seriously. But within minutes, we're back to the sort of politics that brought it about in the first place. People looking for those parts of the stories that feed their own narrative. You know, the whole thing about Paula Vennell's CBE and whether Alan Bates should be knighted, that these kind of, for me, non story parts of the story. That then allow people to move away from the stuff that really, really matters.
1: Just on that, help me understand: is is this partly newspapers? I mean, is it that some? Just to bring you back to your past as a journalist, is it that somehow an editor thinks it's easier to get a front page headline about "Let's give a knighthood to Alan Bates" or "Strip of Vennells for CB" than it is to get into the details of what went wrong with the computer system?
0: I think a lot of it is about the desire to make incredibly complex stories really simple. Now, that's that's a natural instinct, which politicians do and journalists do. And in a sense, if you didn't make complicated things simple, nobody would engage with them. But I think it goes deeper than that. I think it's about the politics of this. So, you know, I feel rather sorry for for Ed Davey, the way that he has become the kind of the one that they're trying to turn into a hate figure on this.
1: Yeah, it's interesting that because I mean, we we clearly need some politicians being held accountable. I don't know whether it's Ed Davey. Well, they they should all be held accountable. But individually accountable. I mean, it'd be very unfortunate if we got into a world where we thought Oh well, it's all very difficult being a minister. Yeah, he didn't do his oh, job very yeah. no, well, but that. it's not really his that. fault. So, I mean, I think it's reasonable to say, let's try to dig into what these secretaries of state were doing, what these ministers were doing, and how on earth did they take so easily the assurance of the post office in Fujitsu and didn't listen to people, uh, MPs who are really pushing it? I agree with that. I mean, that. are there particular ministers that you think rather than Ed Davies should be being gone after? Joe Swinson, George Freeman—I mean, other particular people.
0: If you think about this, so the coalition came into power in twenty ten. Yeah. Yes, Ed Davey was the minister at a particular point in time during that. But there have been a whole series of conservative ministers that are just sort of avoiding the flak. And it, you know, we talked there about Julian Keegan. So her husband was chief executive or a very senior position at Fujitsu during, I think, a whole year of this this period when this was going on. Now. I don't know any more than you do whether he has any extra special responsibility that makes him particularly vulnerable within this whole debate. However, what I do know is that if he were the spouse of one of the Labour ministers or one of the Lib Dem ministers who'd been at this, I think the media would have gone about it far more than they have. And I think what's happening is as we get into the election year, I think papers like The Mail, The Sun, The Express, The Times... The Telegraph are so becoming so tribal, so much about trying to not help the Tories so much because we see with the Telegraph it's helping about helping a faction within the Tories, but certainly they see their driving mission at the moment is to do in the opposition. So I think it's more about that. So, for, let, let's just talk about Ed yep. Davey a little bit. So, there was this interview he did with. Actually, with Dan Hewitt, who was the the same guy that provoked the Gillian Keevan, why doesn't somebody tell us we did a fucking good job? And so he asked Ed Davey 10 times whether he would apologize. Okay, Ed Davey said he was sorry for the delays, for the the damage, for the, the lives that were ruined. And he was sorry that he was lied to. Now, I had some sympathy with him there because if he had said, yes, I apologize, what he's doing there is taking personal responsibility. For things which he is adamant he could
1: not have done. Weird, weird, this isn't it? Because I am totally on the other view of this. I think people should apologise and they should apologise even if they're not 100% responsible. When I was the prisons minister and I was asked in the select committee whose fault it was that there were problems in Liverpool prison, I said it's my fault. I take responsibility. Yeah. I apologise. If I don't sort this out, I'm going to go. This thing about it's all the civil servants' fault, they all lied to me, I think is pathetic. Mm. And it's not leadership. Okay. I think they're not. He's not showing leadership. And I think the public would forgive if you apologise. So I got, of course, I got headlines saying, you know, minister says he's sorry for what happens. Minister apologises for Liverpool thing. But you suck it up. You're the minister for goodness sake. That's your job to be accountable.
0: Okay. Okay. Well, it's, it's, let's go back to another very famous apology, when Nick Clegg apologised for backing the conservative part of the coalition in relation to tuition fees. Now, I think he did it because he felt he really had to do it. Like you're saying, he felt a sense of sort of responsibility. Well, because he did it, didn't he? Yes, he did do it. But the apology politically was almost as damaging as what he did in relation to the tuition
1: fees. It just got completely lampooned. And and equally damaging, though, just keep pushing on this equally damaging for the body politic is the sense that politicians never apologize, never take responsibility. Yeah, I agree. And and, and, and we've also seen this with things like. well, the, the, the horrible events in Northern Ireland and the refusal to apologise for that, Hillsborough, uh, British colonial atrocities. I mean, p- people want yeah. apologies yeah. and this ridiculous. And it's the same I found as a constituency MP. And I think this is actually relates really closely to the way that the post office and Fujitsu behaved. If the NHS and the hospitals apologise to my constituents when things went wrong, there would have been much less trouble. One of the reasons people get wound up and mount legal cases is, is that people are always told never to apologize. And that's really mm. angers people. So hold on, let's let's just
0: let's just drill down on yep. Ned Davy then. So look, it was a terrible interview on all sorts of levels. And I think the reason for that was because he'd worked out the line he was going to say, and then Dan Hewitt just kept asking him the same question, and he kept saying the same thing. Because he had decided he was going
1: to say sorry but not going to say the word apology. His phrase was, I've said time and time again that I deeply regret that I was lied to on an industrial scale. I mean, it makes it sound as though he's the victim here. Pathetic stuff.
0: Okay. But is he worried about liability? Is he worried about, I don't know. Uh, what I'll tell you, shall I tell you what I'd have advised him to say? Yep. I'd have said, so will you apologize? I think always best to go yes yep. or no. So will you apologize? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Yes is the answer. Yes is the answer. And let me be clear what I'm apologizing for. The system has let people down. I was a part of that system that did so. But in my own defense, I must make clear that. I think you can do it like that. But he should have at least (laughs) said yes. yes. I agree with that.
1: I, I mean, I also think there's a way of doing this where you can say, yes, I feel profoundly guilty. This is, you know, I was in charge. I'm accountable. And then move on to say, however, if I've got a second to explain this, It was extraordinary how many lies I now realize I heard.
0: Right. And in the current climate, what would happen is that you'd go straight from the apology to a why on earth aren't you resigning? you've admitted this was your fault, you've admitted <laughs> responsibility, why aren't you residing? And, and that, that, I suspect, is what he was trying to avoid. But look, the Tories are slightly getting away with it on this one, aren't they? Because the other thing that's running the whole time is that, you know, Keir Starmer as DPP should have checked and should have done this and should have done that. And what happens, and what I worry about is that so we had a lot of questions this week about. In fact, the thing, the single thing we had more questions this week about Michael Gove and the Teesside Freeport than any other issue. I've got a feeling that's going to be the next one, where private eye sort of ploughs a pretty lone furrow in going after something. Infected Blood Scandal, another one. These scandals only seem to get the attention they deserve when suddenly they explode. But when they explode, as this as they do. We seem to see the reasons why the state doesn't deal with them properly in the first yeah, place. I think that's
1: right. A little bit of tribute, um, which has done very, very well in the Post Office scandal book that I keep praising, uh, in the select committee. So we don't we don't talk actually that much about select committees, and these are obviously groups of backbench MPs who don't have much power but are able to take evidence in camera, and they did an incredibly good job in 2015. Actually really good job, particularly if you look at the Hansard transcript from Nadim Zahawi, who was questioning Paula Venels, who was the CEO of the post office at the time. And select committees can be pretty disappointing. And I was on a couple of pretty disappointing select committees. But in this case, they're very forensic. They really pick up on the details. But to return to your point about how you conduct yourself in public, Paula Venels is a case study in how not to do it. I mean, she literally will not answer. She's like mm. the worst sort of politician. She won't answer any direct question. She tries to say she doesn't know, or she wouldn't give an answer. or She needs to consult. It's just the most painful mm. thing you've mm. ever seen. And she's got sitting next to her, the auditor from Second Sight, who keeps saying she's refusing to give us the documents we need to find out whether or not Post Office of Fujitsu are actually doing what they're accused of doing. So then the MPs turn to her and say, well, is that true? Well, I, I don't know. Will you provide the documents? Well, we have provided documents. Yes, but this guy's sitting next to you just saying you won't give them the documents. Will you give the documents? Well, you know, I'm, I'm not. I'm not. Anyway, it's shocking. One other thing I think I've gotten feedback is people have said that we didn't put enough emphasis on the ability of Fujitsu IT engineers to actually take over the terminals in a sub-postmaster's office and actually yeah. insert yeah. data into those terminals. and And that was a really vital mm. part because that's something that, Paula Vennels in the post office lied about consistently, there was clear evidence for about five years that Fujitsu were able to alter the data on these systems.
0: Mm. By the way, just on the select, on the select committee, Nadim Zahawi, who has a sort of a cameo performance uh, on the drama asking some of those yep. questions. Another shout out for, a, I thought Alicia Kearns at the Foreign Affairs Select Committee this week did a very good job with David Cameron. She really, really wasn't letting him away with some of the answers he was trying to sort of just sort of skirt by. So I agree, I agree with you about select committees. Another thing which I think is worth drawing people's attention to, Alan Bates, who's become this sort of, you know, wonderful, heroic figure in the national life. But again, he had a piece in the Financial Times at the weekend, which was a, had a really interesting element to it which I've not seen reported or covered anywhere else. Now, I may have missed it. It could have been. But I think this is what I mean, is that Alan Bates has just become the kind of heroic figure that everybody says is a heroic figure. And then meanwhile, let's go and chase Ed Davey, Keir Starmer, find some new postmasters. That we haven't. So this piece that he wrote, the headline is, Why I Wouldn't Beat the Institution Today. And he's referring to an obscure Supreme Court ruling last summer when there was a case that was brought on behalf of truck hauliers That essentially used this litigation funding sector, in other words, to, to find funders for difficult legal cases. And he says that this case would make it almost impossible and risks unwinding years of historic judgments against proven corporate wrongdoers. In other words, something has happened in the courts that he is saying would make future Alan Bates make it almost impossible to have the sort of success that he's had. So that seems to me like a serious point being made by one of the central figures in this drama. But because it's already moved into the, let's just get back into the political yarboo, it's kind of, oh, well, that's kind of yesterday's news, who cares? And I think we have got lots of these scandals bubbling under. And you mentioned some earlier about, you know, why Hillsborough took so long. Uh, I think the infected blood scandal, as I say, is going to be one of the Biggest scandals of of our history when it, people finally get to the bottom of it. T Sport that we've mentioned. So I just think we we don't pay sufficient attention to detail at the time.
1: And and also learning this, I, I had a very interesting conversation with three lawyers on Saturday who are involved in litigation, looking at what they think was happening with Post Office and Fujitsu. They say that one of the things that isn't being reported enough is that the post office will have received legal advice telling them that they were legally obliged to chase down fraud and mm. that there then probably would have been quite a big management push to try to find fraud. And in fact, there was evidence before the system was brought in that hundreds of millions of pounds was going missing. And that is a real psychological problem for an organization because if the management is saying your priority is to chase fraud and then someone comes back and says, whoa, 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 your new policy on chasing fraud is actually leading to innocent people being prosecuted. Your whole system's crazy. There's a massive emotional resistance to that because it's not information that mm. you you want to hear. The other thing they were saying is whether anything's changed, because you know, you and I went on Thursday and we met quite a lot of general counsels who are the senior lawyers in companies, and some of them were saying to us that they feel that the lawyers really let down. Um, the post office, and that they, instead of taking this very aggressive policy of denying everything, trying to destroy and kill the sub postmasters in court, they should have been saying to the company, Is this true? Look into it honestly, expose mm. the problems. And again, I had a huge argument amongst these two lawyers on Saturday. One of them saying, Nan, nah, and nah, I don't think anything's changed. In fact, our insurance companies would really push us to deny liability, not apologize, because we'd be worried about settlement of the case. And the other lawyer was saying no 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 the culture's changed we're now much more honest we're much more open we're much more happy to seek mediation
0: i don't think the culture has changed i think we're still in a in a pretty cultural malaise on this anyway shall we um we said taiwan at the top should we do that in the q a and 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 finish up with um all this polling swilling around about yes tourists? yeah t- tell us about it yeah we're talking on on monday the daily telegraph is splashing with a poll predicting a complete wipeout sort of bigger than 1997 I would advise the Labour Party to treat that with a pinch of salt, uh, especially when you read into the text and you see the hand of Lord Frost and some of these people behind it. It's all part of the internal shenanigans going on. And, and so
1: just, just just, develop this, because you often say that the right-wing press um, you know, are basically trying to be pro-Tory. But in in this case, what you're saying is that actually the Telegraph is backing an anti-Rishi Sunak faction and is, is quite enjoying the fact that he's going to be wiped out.
0: I think so well there there's certainly you know we've got the the Rwanda vote coming up in the in the commons and there's a lot of sort of agitation going on about that on the right and then the other, the other, another poll, like one of those kind of five hundred people polls, but <laughs> which came out yesterday, suggesting that Nigel Farage um, would sort of, you know, wipe out the Tories in, I think it was Clacton. Um, and then when you get into, it, you just discover that the poll was funded by Aaron <laughs> Banks, um, his right-hand man in the in the Leave campaign. But there is a lot of kind of this stuff going on. And you know, we talked last week about Peter Kellner, who'd done a very good analysis in the New European. And he's, he's, he's written another piece for the New European this week, which actually is it's going to be the front cover story, which has got a huge picture of Nigel Farage with Rishi Sunak in his pocket. Um, now, I think that, you know, I don't particularly enjoy talking about Nigel Farage because I think he's one of those people who's done fundamental damage to this country in his role in Brexit. But there's no doubt at all that he's a political campaigner. Uh, he's a pretty powerful force in the land and can be. And what um, Peter has written about is that he's done a very big analysis of the polling of the, the various manifestations of the reform, Brexit party, referendum party, UKIP, etc. And it does show that reform has actually not been doing at all well. When you look at the, he's got a list of all the by-elections that have taken place between 2022 up to today. And reform's share of the vote has hovered between one and three, four. The highest they got was 5.4%. When you go back to when Faraj was when in his pomp, 2013 to 2014, he was getting between 18 and 597 that was in Clacton, which they went on to be one of the highest leave voting seats in the in the country. But the other thing that's really interesting, and this I think will set off alarm bells in Rishi Sunak's land, if you look at conservative voters and ask them for their favorable, unfavorable ratings for the current party leaders. So unsurprisingly, when they when you ask them about Keir Starmer, 18% of Tory voters have a favorable view of him, 76% have an unfavorable. These are people who yeah, voted Tory yeah. in 2019, so 18 to 76. Rishi Sunak, favorable 40%, unfavorable 56%. Nigel Farage, favorable 52%, unfavorable 32%. So what that's saying is that the Tories like Nigel Farage better than they like Rishi Sunak.
1: That is a problem. The, the maths is that The math says that In the 2019 um, voters who gave Boris Johnson his big victory, it's minus 16 for Sunak and plus 20 for Farage. And This is absolutely at the heart of this question of both how on earth Sunak manages a Tory party where Tory members and 2019 Tory voters are significantly more right wing than the kind of government he's running and don't like him and prefer Farage, but also what that means after the conservative defeat. Uh, in the next election when- uh, if, if they are defeated, Rory. That's right. Well, the, these figures seem to suggest pretty consistently fact, we just- we, we were, <laughs> You and I were talking, weren't we, to Professor Sir John Curtis, who seems to agree with me that it's a when, not an if when it comes to Labour against Conservatives. I know you don't want anyone getting complacent. John Curtis seemed to be pretty pr- pretty confident about that.
0: Well, uh, I mean, look, looking at the numbers, yeah.
1: And I think that then is- the reason to be very, very worried the Conservative Party will lurch to the right after their defeat because these figures suggest there will be, you know, a loss of drivers in the party to say we lost because we didn't go right enough. Mm. The other thing I didn't I hadn't quite realized until I until I read, maybe I should have known this,
0: but reform is a registered company and eight of the 15 issued shares belong to Farage. Richard Tice, the leader, has five of the other seven we call it a party, but it's actually a company. Farage is the majority shareholder. Tice has lent it quite a lot of money, but Farage, if he wants it, could just sort of step in and take over and be
1: the leader. And he's, he's thoroughly enjoying this game of people wondering whether he will or he won't. He's learnt this partly from Gert Wilders, who's the right-wing Dutch politician who, mm. who got most votes in the last Dutch election, who also doesn't have a party. Has a sort of one man show. And there are two advantages. For Hurt Wilders, it actually means that he doesn't have to fully report on his financial contributions because he's not registered as a party.
0: I'm sure that would appeal to Farage.
1: Yeah. The biggest advantage, of course, for them is they don't have to worry about party members. So if you think about the way that Corbyn came through or Boris Johnson came through with votes from party members, by having a sort of one man business, they are able to have total control and not really allow their party members to have any kind of democratic influence on direction. Mm, mm.
0: I saw, uh, talking of polls, not polls, I saw the betting markets on the upcoming by-elections, Wellingborough, where Peter Bone's partner is standing for the Tories and Kingswood. um, And fair to say... (laughs) (laughs) is <laughs> that they were not looking good for the Tories and they're happening later this month. But Rory, just answer me this. The Tories can't get, they can't get rid of another leader. Can't they can't you. get rid of another, they, they definitely
1: cannot get rid of are you sure? Uh, well, they can. They're definitely, there are stirrings. They can, but it would be absolutely criminally insane. But you're absolutely right. You, you can see it a bit. You know, you can see Daily Mail columnists beginning to say we need to bring back in Boris Johnson obviously the David Frost view. I mean, there will be people out there on the right of the Conservative Party saying, our one chance to win this election. I mean, and this is the problem. I mean, with people like me saying, well, you're guaranteed to lose anyway. I guess there might be people say, well, let's have one more throw of the dice and see if we can bring in some crazy, charismatic right-wing figure and and take it through. But I I would think it was actually Mm. criminally insane to get rid of your leader yet again in the run-up to an election. Mm, mm. Well, Alison, I think We're coming to an end and maybe we can address Taiwan in question time tomorrow at the Taiwan election results. Yeah, let's do that. Great. Thank you very much. Take care. See you soon.